Divergence, the podcast miniseries. Welcome back to the Divergence podcast. I am R.L. Solberg, your host. My friends call me Rob. Uh, And I will be walking with you on our historical journey through the first three centuries of the Christian faith. So this is episode three in our mini-series in which we're examining the the Jewish-Christian relations in the early church. And yes, this is the subject of my new book, Divergence. Um, This mini-series is a bit of a, a companion to that book. Now, you don't need to own the book in order to take part in this series, of course. However, I would highly recommend that you do buy it because 100% of the profits are being donated to fight anti-Semitism around the world. So that's right. I'm not making any money from the book. It's going to a good cause. So you can find out more about that at divergencebook.com or rlsolberg.com. So if you've caught the first couple episodes, you know that we're kind of working on a three-part formula for how we're doing our examination. The first thing that we're looking at is we're examining the New Testament writings. So if you've if you caught the first couple episodes, you know that we're kind of working on a, a three-part formula. Part one, we're examining the New Testament writings to establish our baseline on what the Bible teaches Uh, as far as how Christians should view Jews and Judaism. Uh, And then part two of our formula is we're going to examine the writings of the early church fathers from after the biblical documents were written up through the first three centuries of the faith. And then lastly, we're going to examine the state of Christianity, of Christian thinking, um, at the outcome of the Council of Nicaea in the year 325. And we'll compare that to our New Testament baseline and see how much has changed over the years in terms of Christian theology, um, Christian attitudes towards Jews and Judaism. And as we work through this formula, each episode in this series is going to really build on the previous one. So I'd encourage you to, to listen to them in order if you can. If not, you'll certainly get a little something interesting in each episode. But we're basically building a case over time. Now, in the last episode, we began on the uh, the establishment of the New Testament baseline, and we looked at the Apostle Paul and, in particular, his teachings in Romans uh, books. Uh, I'm sorry, chapters nine through eleven. And in this episode, we're going to continue on building that New Testament baseline by looking at Jesus and the Jews. So now we're starting to look at the biblical record of Jesus and his posture towards the Jewish people. And and here we find a very interesting contrast because while his earthly ministry was almost exclusively focused on saving the Jewish people, the house of Israel, his only clashes that we have recorded in scripture were with Jewish religious leaders. So there's a bit of an interesting dichotomy there, and we're going to take a look at both sides of the issue. Let's start with Jesus' focus on Israel. So on the Gospel Coalition website, there's an article called, Why Did Jesus Say He Came Only for Israel? by uh, Trevin Wax. And he says this, quote, Jesus' ministry appears to be focused so relentlessly on the Jewish people that many scholars have debated whether Jesus was concerned with outsiders at all. We've got a number of examples of this throughout the New Testament. For example, uh, in Matthew, Jesus is instructing his disciples to avoid the towns of the Gentiles. In in Matthew 10.6, Jesus says this, But go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And we also see an emphasis on the Jewish people in his prophetic warnings to the nation of Israel, you know, in Matthew 24, um, Mark 13, Luke 13. There were symbolic actions that he took, like, like cleansing the temple and cursing the fig tree, that really show Jesus' Israel-centric ministry. 
And I think we see that most clearly in uh, Matthew 15, where we've got the story of the Gentile woman who is begging Jesus to help her demon-possessed daughter. Let me pick this up here. Matthew 15, starting at verse 23. It says this, But he did not answer her a word, and his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she's crying out after us. He answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. So this passage, I mean, this makes it very clear that Jesus' primary focus is on the Jewish people. I mean, he was referring to the message that he was bringing as the bread of the children of Israel and suggesting that it's not right to throw that bread to the Gentile dogs, he was basically calling them. However, you know, we see the woman's faith here. He heals her daughter because of that faith. And that reminds us of the words that we looked, looked at last time in Romans, uh, where Paul wrote, Romans 1, 16, Paul writes, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, which is first to the Jew, but also to the Greek or the Gentile. So Jesus here is adopting that same posture, first to the Jew, but also the Gentile. So let's take a look at the conflicts with Jewish religious leaders that we find in the New Testament. So interestingly, there's really no record in the New Testament of Jesus clashing or arguing or fighting with anyone other than the Jewish religious leaders. You know, we see him fighting with the scribes and fighting with the Pharisees and, and the teachers of the law and the chief priests, but we don't see him quarreling with Jewish lay people or, or even the Gentiles, or, or for that matter, we don't see him fighting the Romans who carried out his execution. There's a historian, Everett Ferguson, who I'll cite quite a bit because he has some really good stuff. He says this, quote, During Jesus' ministry in Galilee, his principal religious opposition came from the Pharisees over the interpretation of the law of Moses applied to matters of daily life. At Jerusalem, the opposition came from the Sadducees, the leading priests and ruling aristocrats who controlled the temple and matters related to it. Now, it's interesting to note that the conflict between Jesus and the Jewish leaders, it went both ways, it, although not to the same degree. So on the one hand, we've got the Jewish authorities who are persecuting Jesus, ultimately to the point of death. And on the other hand, you know, Jesus castigated many of the Jewish leaders for their, for their hypocrisy and their blindness. And, and Paul did the same and Peter did the same. And so we could sort of, perhaps this is a little too crude, but we could summarize the conflict recorded in the New Testament like this, to say, you know, the message of the Christians to the Jews was repent and be saved by placing your faith in Jesus, who's your Messiah. But the message of the Jews to the Christians was more like renounce your heresy or die. There are, there are many instances of the Jewish religious leaders plotting to kill Jesus. So what we want to do is take a look at both sides of this conflict. Let's start off by looking at the, the Jewish persecution of Jesus. So Luke 4, we see kind of the beginning of Jesus' ministry. So he, he's in a synagogue, he's in Nazareth in his hometown, and he stands up among his fellow Jews. And this is on a Sabbath, by the way. He stands up and he opens the scroll of Isaiah and he reads this. And, I, and I'll be reading from Luke 4, uh, starting at verse 8. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. 
because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So that's Luke 4, um, verses 8 and 9. But of course, Jesus was reading here from the scroll of Isaiah. Now, they didn't have chapter and verse back then, but what he ended up reading was what we know today as Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2. And then, after reading that, Jesus pronounces, and here we, we see this in, um, now we're in Luke 4, 21, Jesus says, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. So Im- imagine that, that you're sitting in church one day, and a guy stands up and reads something from the Old Testament and says, Hey, this is about me. So that's basically what we have here. And what's interesting is in verse 22 here, Luke 4:22, we see that his fellow Jews in the synagogue, they initially spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. However, Jesus didn't stop there. He, he kept speaking. And as he did so, the people started to get really angry about it because here in the middle of a Jewish synagogue on the Sabbath, they started to realize that Jesus was teaching them that the Gentiles were going to receive God's help while Israel was going to have to suffer. So in Luke 4, 28 and 29, we read this. When they heard these things, and we're speaking of the, the other Jews in the synagogue that were listening to Jesus. When they heard these things, all in the synagogue were filled with wrath, and they rose up and drove him out of the town and brought him to the brow of the hill on which their town was built so that they could throw him down the cliff. And of course, this was the beginning of what would end up being a, a large-scale Jewish persecution of Jesus that continued you know, well after his death. And, and the persecution of him as recorded in the New Testament, it ranged from you know, questioning him, testing him, uh, challenging him, trying to trick him into slipping up or saying something heretical or blasphemous, went from there to even you know, arresting him, having him beaten, and ultimately having him killed. Um, so in, in my book, Divergence, if I have a, several appendices in the back because I, I really loved diving in and studying these things. And so Appendix A in the book is uh, a list of all the instances of the persecution of Jesus as recorded in the gospel. So every, it says every verse, who did the persecuting, what they did, you know, where it happened and all that. It's an interesting read to take all of those uh, events or instances and read them all together. And it really shows you the degree of hatred that the Jews at the time had for Jesus and his followers, the Nazarenes. And of course, his apostles and disciples and everybody following him ended up inheriting the hatred um, that his teachings, that Jesus' teachings had stirred up among, among the Jewish religious leadership. And of course, this was no surprise to Jesus. He knew this persecution would come. In uh, John fifteen twenty, he says, If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And then in Luke 21, uh, starting at verse 12, we read this, Jesus talking to his, his disciples, they will lay their hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons, and you will be brought before kings and governors for my name's sake. And then jumping down to verse 16, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake. So Jesus is pulling no punches there. He says the same thing or similar things in Luke 12, uh, starting at verse 11, and then in John 16, 2 and 3. So this was something that Jesus knew was coming and something that he wanted to prepare his followers for. And I think that the reason these words are recorded in Scripture is because Jesus was warning us as well today, even in the year 2021, that 
if we're going to follow him, if we're going to put our allegiance first and foremost to him, we can expect some blowback, or as we say in the corporate world, some strong headwinds as we try to live out our faith in a fallen world. In a sense, we might take that sort of as a badge of honor that we're, we're doing things right. I mean, not that we want to stir up conflict because we want to interact with love and gentleness and respect as the New Testament teaches. But at the same time, if we're truly living out biblical principles, especially in today's world, we're bound to meet some resistance somewhere. Okay, so getting back to uh, scripture here, and, and this is something that I had uncovered as I put together the list of instances of persecution of Jesus in the New Testament. The very first incident incident in the Nazareth synagogue on the Sabbath, that's the only time in all of scripture where Jesus' persecutors are described as, quote, all who were in the synagogue, Luke 4.28. Now, after this, the scripture records Jesus' persecutions coming solely at the hands of the Jewish religious leaders. Um, and it's also important to recognize that while every contentious persecution that Jesus endured came at the hands of the Jewish religious leadership, not every interaction that he had with Jewish authorities was contentious. For example, uh, the Apostle John tells us there was a division among the Jewish religious leaders concerning Jesus. In uh, John twelve forty two, we read this, many, even of the authorities, believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. So this difference between the Jewish authorities is really interesting, because if we think about it, you know, we've got this group, you would assume it's probably the lesser authorities, that believed in Jesus and presumably weren't the ones participating in his persecution. However, they were reluctant to speak up because they also didn't want to get kicked out of the synagogue. So at least one thing we can draw from this is that the opposition against Jesus from the Jewish religious leadership wasn't a unanimous thing, right? Only a portion of the Jewish religious leadership, and granted it was probably the highest ranking segment, but only a portion of the Jewish religious leadership was behind his persecution. Okay, so let's flip that coin over and look at uh, the way Jesus rebuked and castigated the Jewish religious leaders. Like I said, it's, it was a two-way street. And of course, the first thing that we think of is the woes of the Pharisees, right? We read about that in Matthew 23, uh, Mark 12, Luke 11. This is, this is where Jesus issued this series of very uh, forceful, let's call them, denunciations of the scribes and the Pharisees that he was talking to at the time. So in these passages, we see Jesus really taking these leaders to task for their hypocrisy, right? He's portraying them as, you know, preoccupied with ritual observance of these tiny details, and then they're forsaking the larger, more important parts of the law. He's accusing them really of, of putting on this sort of outer shell, this this sheen of religiousness and piety, you know, and righteousness. Meanwhile, inside their hearts are far from him. His language is, is really quite strong. I mean, imagine someone saying this to you. This is Matthew 23, 27 and 28. Imagine Jesus saying these words to you. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which appear outwardly beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. So these obviously would have been very offensive words to the people who were hearing them, the scribes and the Pharisees, and everyone around them 
hearing Jesus castigating these people, I mean, it would have been a very, in that culture especially, a very shameful event for them. So Jesus wasn't, you know, playing around with kid gloves here. He was being very bold and direct. You know, you have this you have this balance in Scripture in the New Testament between grace and truth. And Jesus saw this as the time for truth. He had to be just bluntly honest, you know. So he's, he's branding Jewish leaders, or we should say certain or some Jewish leaders, he's branding as hypocrites and calling them blind fools, right? He accuses them here, Matthew 23, verse 15, he's accusing them of traveling across sea and land to make a single proselyte. And when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much a child of hell as yourselves. And then in Matthew 23:33, Jesus asks this kind of rhetorical pointed question. He says this, you serpents, you brood of vipers, how are you to escape being sentenced to hell? Imagine hearing that from Jesus. Of course, he raised the ire. So we, we may look at the Jews persecuting Jesus, but like I said, it was a two-way street. Jesus really took it to them as well. In uh, John 8, Jesus is again clashing with the Pharisees. He says here, um, we'll start at verse 42, John 8, 42. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. All right, that's uh, hard teachings and tough love from Jesus right there. And Jesus' judgment on Israel and her leaders it wasn't limited to just words either. He also he also expressed his righteous anger through symbolic actions like the cleansing of the temple, which we read about in Mark 11 and Matthew 21 and Luke 19 and John 2. Now, if you read about this in the Expository's Bible Commentary, uh, it points out the importance of, of where that incident was placed in Scripture. So on page 727, it says this, quote, The temple cleansing is sandwiched between the two incidents of the fig tree, an arrangement meant to link the accounts. The judgment symbolized by the cursing of the fig tree is initiated by Jesus' cleansing of the temple, and the cleansing of the temple is prophetic of the destruction of Jerusalem and the eschatological judgment. Now, I think it's really important for us to notice that, you know, in Jesus' strong words, his woes of the Pharisees and his, his symbolic actions, he was not arguing against the Jews as God's chosen people, nor was he arguing against the Jews as a race of people, which of course would have been silly because Jesus himself was Jewish, but his problem was with the Jewish leaders. And again, not all Jewish leaders, but those who didn't correctly understand their own scriptures, right? The target of his criticism was their, uh, their elevation of man-made interpretations above the actual Hebrew scriptures. You know, we know that in the, in the intertestamental period, the Jewish rabbinic leadership got very legalistic and they started what they called building fences around the Torah and adding all these extra things to it. And that's where, that's where Jesus con was concentrating his critical remarks. He felt like they were uh, lifting up their man-made interpretations beyond what Scripture said, and by doing that, they were leading his people astray. So, so Jesus' anger wasn't raised against the Jewishness of the religious leaders, but rather their, their disloyalty to Scripture and their disloyalty to God. 
I mean, we see this when, when he told the Sadducees, they ask him this misguided question about the resurrection. And in Matthew 22, verse 29, Jesus says, you are wrong because you know neither the scriptures nor the power of God. And here, I think it's also important to point out that, again, these, these woes and these prophetic warnings, they are no more anti-Jewish than the judgments against the Jewish people that we find in the Hebrew Bible, in the Old Testament. God himself refers to Israel throughout the Old Testament as an unfaithful bride, as a stiff-necked people, as a disobedient and rebellious nation. In fact, Israel was so persistently disobedient throughout the Old Testament that we see instances where God's disciplining her because of her disobedience, you know, with slavery in Egypt, with the, uh, the 40 years of wandering in the wilderness, with death when he sent the snakes among them, uh, disciplined them with exile, kicking them out of their homeland. And then, of course, at the advent of, of Christ, as we saw last in the last episode in Romans, God hardened Israel to the point where only a remnant remained. And it's interesting because as we look through the, the history and the timeline of Israel through the Old Testament, and we see them failing time and again and being disobedient time and again, and then the, the prophets had to come, and we tend to look down on them and think, wow, boy, weren't they disobedient? Why couldn't they just obey God? Isn't that a simple thing to do? I mean, they had God right there with them, and they couldn't obey him, you know? But a lot of times, I feel like we, when we look at Scripture, we always read ourselves into the good guy part, and we read somebody else, the other people, the Israelites or whoever, into the bad guy part. So it's always interesting to read through a passage in Scripture when you see something like the rich young ruler that, that came up to Jesus. What if we read that and think, well, maybe that's me. Maybe I'm the bad guy in this scene. And so when we see Israel failing in the Old Testament, I think that's us. We are Israel. We are the ones who know the right thing to do and we can't do it, right? We see Israel as a nation doing that in the Old Testament. But then we read, of course, in Romans 7, Paul's talking about, I know what the right thing to do is, but I can't do it. So that struggle is real and that's us. And sometimes that leads to, to situations and consequences that we have to go through because of our own tendency to sin. And it's interesting because it's equally important um, to remember that the reason that God disciplined Israel was the same reason that God disciplines us in life. It's because of his love. He disciplined Israel because he loves her. In the Old Testament, we see like in, the, in Psalm 94, the psalmist writes, Blessed is the one you discipline, Lord, the one you teach from your law. And then the author of Hebrews in the New Testament, Hebrews 12, 6, the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son. And even Jesus himself tells us in Revelations 3, those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So I bring this up to give us some perspective because I've heard this. I mean, amazingly to me, it shocks me when I hear it, but from Christians, you know, calling the Jews Christ killers. Right? And certainly there were certain Jews at the time who persecuted Jesus. But we need to remember that God loves them too. We're supposed to pray for our enemies and for those who persecute us. And so we can't look back on Israel and say, what a failure of a nation, what a failure of a people, because the Bible points just as strongly at Christians. We are loved by God, but that doesn't mean we won't be disciplined, and it doesn't mean we won't make mistakes. And it doesn't mean that forgiveness isn't available for us as Christians or for the Jewish people. And on that note, it's also important to acknowledge that Jesus clashes with the religious leaders and his teachings in general. I mean, they weren't 
aimed at trying to do away with the Hebrew scriptures, right? You know, he says in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So throughout the New Testament, we see that Jesus' focus is really on clarifying, and in some instances, even elevating the teachings of the Tanakh. Now, I should pause for a second here. The the word Tanakh, for those of you that don't know, that's the Jewish name for the Hebrew Bible. So it's just the same body of text that that Christians know as the Old Testament, uh, or it's also called the Hebrew Bible or the Jewish Bible. So Tanakh is just this acronym that's made up of the first Hebrew letter of each of the three subdivisions of the books. So what we call the Old Testament, the Jews call the Tanakh, they've separated it into into three subdivisions, so to speak. So the T is for Torah, the first five books of the Bible, and that means teaching or instruction. And then N is for Nevi'im, which means prophets. And then K is for Ketuvim, which means writings. So they've got the Torah, the prophets, and the writings. And that's the letters T-N-K, which you pronounce Tanakh. So anyway, we see that Jesus' focus in his ministry was not to get rid of the Tanakh. It was to clarify those teachings. You know, we see that in the Sermon in the Mount, you know, with all those series of statements of, you have heard it was said, but I say to you. So here we have Jesus giving us sort of clarification. And in some, in some cases, I think you could make the argument he was elevating the law back to its intended status on things like anger and lust and on oaths and on retaliation. And as I mentioned before, on loving your enemies, he was establishing a higher bar on all those things. Okay, so there's one final area of the New Testament teaching that we need to look at because of its relevance to our study, and that's the teaching on those who deny Christ. So, you know, the ultimate source of conflict that we've seen between Jesus and the Jews and the Jews and the Christians, the whole source of that conflict is the person of Christ. Why is that? Well, it's because the gospel hinges on us accepting his work as our Savior and our divine Messiah. So therefore, any theology that denies Jesus, whether that's Jewish theology, Islamic, atheism, whatever it is, any teaching or belief system that denies Christ, we have to oppose as Christians because it's, it's a false teaching that ultimately leads to damnation. And that is why Jesus was so hard on the Pharisees and the leaders because he knew that they would be leading his people away from him if they didn't change their ways. The Apostle Peter, he warned us of the high stakes involved. Look at 2 Peter 2, verses 1 and 2. There will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in Matthew 10, we see Jesus saying the same thing about those who deny him. Matthew 10, verses 32 and 33. Everyone who acknowledges me before men, I also will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will also deny before my Father who is in heaven. And again in Mark 8:38, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels." And all these warnings that we read here in the New Testament about denying Christ, they apply to 
anyone who denies Christ, whether that's, you know, Jesus' fellow Jews to whom he was speaking when he said these words, um, who would refuse him as their Messiah, all the way down to, again, the year 2021 and us, anyone today, Jewish or otherwise, who denies Christ, they are under these warnings that Jesus has given us. You know, the scripture just doesn't leave us any wiggle room on this issue, right? As followers of Christ, we simply can't accept any theology that denies Christ, including modern Judaism. Okay, we're going to close out this episode here because we've got our New Testament wrap-up that we need to get into, and and we're going to save that for the next episode. And so what we'll be doing in the next episode is we're going to be taking some of this examination and study that we've looked at through the New Testament, the writings of Paul, the teachings of Jesus, and we're going to work it into, establish sort of a a five-point framework that describes the New Testament teachings on Jews and Judaism. And then we're also going to be looking at two somewhat controversial Jewish Christian matters. So these are these are two things, two markers that we can sort of use, theological markers, we'll call them, as we're taking our journey from the Bible through the first three centuries and the, and the church fathers up to the Council of Nicaea. These two markers are going to help us calibrate as we move along through this journey to see exactly where theology and attitudes uh, might be changing within Christianity. So thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time. Shalom. Shalom.